The phoenix and the dragon in traditional Japanese tattoos symbolize harmony and power. That there is no inner strength without harmony. Brought to you by your two co-hosts, Brian Comstock, an e-commerce brand builder in the field of ergonomics with GetNeely.com. He's experimented with every form of scientifically validated human advancement, ranging from MDMA-assisted therapy, ayahuasca retreats, to peptides and stem cells. Scott Conway is a lead generation and sales expert who has a HIROS.com certified lead generation agency, LGG Media. He is a dragon. Episode 8 of the Phoenix and the Dragon. Really excited for this next guest. He has been a lawyer for 18 years. He has four degrees, MBA being one of them. He's been an executive for 12 years. And overall, Renaissance man, history buff, has been playing the piano for a very long time, I think 20 years. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Mr. Brian Purley, how are you doing, sir? Good, buddy. Thanks for having me. What's funny is like your list of accolades and your resume is so impressive and long that I had like a hard time remembering the piano piece, even though we just talked about it off air, like literally before we got started. Yeah. It's a funny story about playing the piano. It was really my first job. And uh, I grew up in, in Southern California in, in Huntington Beach. And uh, my first degree was political science, of my bachelor's. I got a law degree. I specialized and got a postdoctoral degree in intellectual property. And then years later, got an MBA. But I taught myself to play the piano when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And then I got my first gig playing professionally when I was 15. So all throughout my schooling, I was supporting myself by, by playing the piano. And uh, it started out with kind of just some random gigs, birthday parties and weddings. And I played in a rock band in college. But eventually it, it turned into a pretty cool business. And, and I ended up doing concerts. Holy shit. <laughs> it's like, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that piece. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I, I remember you said something as well at a lunch that, at, in, in Medellin that you, you read like something like 70 books a year until you're 36. I tried to. I still strive to, to read at least a book a week. But yeah, during my 20s, early 30s, I was, was reading a lot. And then 36 is when I founded my company in the Philippines. And I didn't quite have enough time to, to read that much anymore. But yeah, I still read quite a lot and it's, I love it. And that company that you started in, in the Philippines, walk us through the whole journey of that company, because there's so many, in, there's so many insane stories uh, with that, but really going from zero to the exit, what did that journey look like? It's, that's a compelling story. So I guess to take it back a few years, I was working as an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles in my mid-20s. And I went into entertainment law and, and intellectual property because of my music background. And I, I wanted to protect the rights of artists. So I did that for quite a while. But the clients that I started counseling were frequently international companies. And so it, it took me around the world. So I, I negotiated deals many times in China and Taiwan and India and other regions of the world. That eventually brought me to 
the Philippines, where I was the global general counsel for a multinational called Behringer. And at Behringer, I interacted with the heads of the other departments, and I became very interested in finance and marketing and business development. And when I left that company, I decided to get my MBA. And I did that at the Instituto de Empresa in, in Madrid. That was uh, about a year and a half long program. And then subsequent to that, I moved back to the Philippines and started this company with, with my, my business partner. And this is, it, it was out there. It, we started out, it was like an Uber for health and wellness services that would be provided in your home. So it, the app works a lot like Uber. So one of the initial services that we offered was therapeutic massages. So you look into the app, rather than seeing a car, you see a therapist, you can see them around your neighborhood, you press book, and then they're at your place in 10 minutes. And so it was a, a real significant departure from what I was previously doing, but presented all kinds of, of fun challenges. So that's pretty much how I got there. Can I, this actually came up recently. I wonder, so did you have to build the app from, from scratch and you hired coders and, the, and all of that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah. There was a yeah. full in-house team of developers. We started my, out with 12. My question with that is, is how do you manage that when presumably you're new to coding? You don't write code. You're not, you've never managed applications. You never managed coders. So with something so net new, sometimes I wonder like how you manage that in terms of your overall ability to like as a with business acumen, it's like how do you apply business acumen and business management when you're very unfamiliar with the territory? Was that a challenge at all? Or how do you approach that? You gotta learn quick. But my Fair enough. <laughs> my business partner at Zenia was a tech person. We met, he was the CTO at, at Behringer and uh, he's a tech genius. He's he, he knows all about these things. So it was really him managing the developers, at least on, at the outset, to create the app. But nonetheless, though, I had to, when you get an MBA, it's great. And if anyone's seeking to do that, I, I recommend it. But in an MBA, you read case studies, you discuss in class, you do, you know, you do projects in small groups with people, which, which try to acclimatize you to various different types of business settings and business challenges. But when you're in the thick of it and it's your company and there's payroll and there's new things to learn, and particularly if you're underfunded, then you don't have a choice but to learn it on your own. And so I, I had to force myself. Overnight, I had to learn operational analysis. I had to learn data science, recruitment and training finance, applied finance. And uh, I like to tell this story. At the onset, when we were still fundraising, we had to develop products that, that went along with the services. So it might be a, a massage bomb or an oil or an exfoliant or something like that. The other products in the market just weren't the quality that we were seeking and, or they were too expensive. Problem was that I didn't have enough money to outsource to a chemist. So I personally had to invent the products. And frequently, this is after a 15-hour day. You haven't slept in months. And so in, in the middle of the night, you're creating a massage ball. And you have no experience with this whatsoever in the past. 
And so it's, uh, it's one of the challenges, I think, of being in a startup in which you're confronted with a situation in which you're unfamiliar with, you don't have the correct skill level, and you need to do it. And, but it, the, it's very interesting because I like to call it the intellectual ring of fire. It's right there before you. And whereas in the past, you're like, this is not my skill set. This is not where my experience lay. You don't have a choice at this point. You've got to jump through. But once you do jump through the first time, you're like, all right, I did it. I created a exfoliant or something. What else can I create? And so it was this mentality that I began to apply in all aspects of running the business, whether it was a, a new division that I previously had no familiarity with. I'm like, all right, it's, it's time to roll up your sleeves and it's the middle of the night, but you're going to do this. Wow. That is not easy to do. Learn something crazy, net new, sleep deprived, managing a company. Would you say that was the most stressful period of your life without getting too personal? Or did you just find you're just in, you're just running, you're just in the thick of it. You're just in the, you're just kind of pumping through with the adrenaline and whatnot. What was that experience like for you? It's, I, surely it is stressful, but you don't have a whole lot of time to reflect upon that because you're always working on the next thing, on the next item. There's a lot of noise and there's a fires that you've got to put out all the time. So you're not really reflecting upon yourself. Eventually you start to learn other skills in terms of time management in the face of a, an avalanche of tasks. And you get through it. The massive benefit of an experience like that is that you push yourself to, to acquire skill sets that you didn't know was possible. And it, it's really a wonderful thing. And this is what I like to tell entrepreneurs that when you step out, when you embark upon this experience, you have to dare to fail because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to make big mistakes, bigger mistakes than you thought you were possible of making. But in the end, if you are learning from those mistakes, you're acquiring new skill sets, you start to become wise and, and you won't make the mistake again. But nonetheless, though, this is the story of the entrepreneur that you're burning the midnight oil for years and you lose sight of, of your social life and working out and weekends and, and nights and everything. It is that story, but I caution against that because in the end, it's just not sustainable. Ultimately, you have to rest. You have to give yourself some leisure time and otherwise your work product is is going to diminish rapidly. So incredible. It reminds me a lot of that, that Tim Grover mindset. He's the personal trainer for Kobe and Michael Jordan. He describes it as done next. And what you're talking about, oh, you don't have time to reflect on the stress or, or when you're in that avalanche of tasks, because then you're not, you're on to the next thing immediately. And that's why I'm like so grateful and appreciative of, of your example, because it's like, it's so clear what, and you're very articulate of breaking it down and sharing those stories of, of what that example looks like. Because the first thing that, that comes to mind when you're describing it is, oh shit, like this is the major leagues. That's what that looks like. I think in the end, 
the real major league is the entrepreneur that that has acquired the skill of time management of of working smart it's it's a cliche but work smart not work hard in the end those are real skills and they're not intuitive you develop them over time but once you've been doing it for a while and hopefully you've learned from your mistakes then you can reach a state of flow could, there's always going to be challenges go ahead could you elaborate on some of those time management skills cuz that's interesting and a lot of people have read time management books and there's quadrants and there's blocking and there's this and that but i would love to get your take on that because i think there is a difference you've already done impressive you were doing impressive things before you got into this kind of hellfire and so i'm curious kind of what what shifted or what's your transferable take on sure. time management yeah yeah before that experience i had a lot of tasks but it was your, your average you're working from 9 to 6 or 9 to 7 practicing law and sometimes you're burning the midnight oil but it's very few and far in between in the end i think that time management practice comes in which you just it's you've got a hurricane coming and you have so many tasks you don't know what to start with you don't know how you're going to accomplish them you think that you're going to have to stay up all night and in the end i think the the best thing to do is take a really hard look at looking in the mirror every day for at least a week preferably and this isn't just the workplace it could be outside of the work you have to commute for an hour and a half that's dead time is there any way that you can avoid that can you work from home or is there a way in which you can actually work while you're going to the, to the office in terms of being at work the best thing to do is to calculate how much time goes into a particular task and the task could be something that you're trying to achieve like let's say i'm writing a contract or i'm performing margin analysis but time is also taken in any variety of, of situations in the workplace or even if you're working from home if, if you have colleagues that are continuously stopping into your office they want to say hi or they're asking about or something that you're working on that takes time so what i would do is i would calculate exactly how much time that's taking per day per week all right so let's say that i calculate that 45 minutes today about an hour tomorrow and about an hour and 15 minutes the following day people just stop by to to talk about things and it could be very pressing issues but in the end that's an hour a day and if you're doing a five day work week that's 20 plus hours per month and you have to think about how what could i have done with that 20 hours what's the value for the time that went in into speaking with my colleagues not saying that don't speak with your colleagues if there's pressing issues that's part of the job that absolutely it has to be done but when i was an executive at least at, at zenia there were so many things that i had to do by myself whether it was operational analysis financial analysis data analytics or thinking about what the future of the company looks like and doing the research what are the new products that we should 
release, the new services. How are we going to get there? What are the potential partnerships that would work in our favor? So there are things that I need to do on my own. And so I need to allow the time for me to achieve those things in addition to handling the general mundane tasks of every day. And I, it can't be overwhelmed by continuous communication. And so what would I do? All right, let's have a three hours on Wednesday or maybe two hours on Wednesday and that's it. So you, what I would do is I would, I would limit the amount of time in which it's just a free for all. Or I could set weekly meetings with my top, my top people. Let's say Monday morning at nine and Thursday morning at nine. And so whatever issues you want to bring up, we do it right here. And that's it because I have my other things to do. And so once you start to, to analyze what goes into your time expenditures, it starts to be really fascinating. One thing is, let me see, you don't know what your schedule is. You're looking around for a phone number. Frequently, lack of organization will result in time waste. And so what I like to do is I like to have everything in a really nice project management system so that, for example, if I create a task, then it's, everything is spelled out very clearly about what needs to be done. If it needs to be delegated, that person is on the task in, from within the system, and they know exactly what to do. We set a deadline, and we communicate regarding that task within that task, and there's no other communications about other matters. So everything is very compartmentalized. And throughout the course of the week, let's say if someone's got a quick question, they can ask me a question from within the task and the software. And I just, it's boom, immediately respond. There is no meeting that's necessary. You just move on. And when, once you do it the first time, if you look at what you do on a weekly basis, there might be tasks that are important. But are they as important as the other thing? So let's say I realize that I'm doing three hours on X task. And sure, it's of moderate importance. It's not a high level issue. It's not pressing or it doesn't address a massive fire. And the question is, can I just put that off or should I delegate this? Or do I need to hire somebody new? And because if I am alleviated of having to do that task, that three hours could go into another activity that, that generates more value. But the thing is, unless you break down what you do on a daily basis for at least a week, you won't see it. And once you do it the first time, you have these aha moments. I can't believe that I put that much time into that. But, and mind you as well, that goes for, uh, for managing a team. Like you'd want to have a general idea of what they're spending their time on. And frequently you can help or you can build a process that would eliminate some sort of repetitive task. And it just, in, in general, there will be much more flow and much more efficiency. But utilizing systems, that's definitely one thing that I learned when I was in Xenia and I've continued to apply that philosophy to this day. When you started Xenia, when... How did the marketing change from when you're going from zero to 30 employees versus 300 employees and then a thousand and so on and so forth? I should clarify, it was my business partner and I, David. So it wasn't just me, but it's very compelling what happened 
at the outset because initially we were doing marketing for on two respects. This is a platform market. And there was one that, that was a customer acquisition and two was provider acquisition. And so we needed to get qualified therapists and eventually there was nurses that were brought on board and doctors and many aspects of the health and wellness field. What's compelling is what happened. Demand for the services skyrocketed. And that was a major problem. I mean, frequently people will say, that sounds like a great problem to have. I would rather have that problem than not enough demand. However, when you have excessive demand and inefficient or um, uh, inadequate supply, you can't serve your customers. And inevitably, it's going to create a storm in which you have spent so much time and money and resources to acquire these customers at the outset, but now you can't even serve them. So imagine if you're getting an Uber, you can't get a car one time. All right, that's unfortunate. Two times, now you're a bit bent out of shape. On the third time, you're out. You lose. Right, the Uber loses, you, you will no longer be a, a customer. And so when we had such excessive demand and very few therapists, the, the marketing for clients was completely turned off because we couldn't afford to have any more clients at that time. This just goes right back to basic microeconomics. And what we did was we put the marketing spend into acquiring new providers. And, and then that, that raised a whole host of new issues. So recruitment, training, how, how do you grow without sacrificing the quality? And that was the overall mission that we were trying to accomplish. It could be an application, sure, it's in health and wellness field, but ultimately the big question is how do you scale a company providing skilled service without sacrificing quality? Ultimately, people are seeking either pain relief, they're seeking relief from anxiety, there's all, all, any number of things that, the, that they're seeking, but the bottom line is that it's a skilled service. In the process of growing your company, and you've got to increase your supply with skill, then the big issue is recruitment. It was a massive challenge and we had to get very creative in terms of, of how to do this. And th this was in the Philippines. It, it was frequently a bit uh, challenging in order to connect. Frequently, the people that were interested in becoming a provider, they lived way outside of the city and there was difficulty coming in. There was traffic issues. There's weather issues. There's, there's a very long uh, rainy season there. And so we had to get creative. And what we did was we found that the greatest method of connecting with the, these potential providers, and by the way, this was, this is in the end, a social impact project. We hired 62% of the mothers in Manila, Philippines are single mothers. And these very difficult to to find work, also inflexible schedules. So what we were doing is targeting single mothers who needed a fair payment every month in order to support their family and also flexible schedules. And that was the value proposition that we were providing. And we discovered that the best way to connect with people was through Facebook Messenger. And 
I wrote out a whole series of questions to ask these potential hires. And inevitably, I said, rather than asking the same questions all the time, basically a robot can do that. So why not have a robot do it? So we created an AI bot and injected that into Facebook Messenger. And Facebook, global Facebook, contacted us. and They said, we've never seen this level of activity because we were doing 10,000 interviews per month. It was just on, on a cycle. And Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. And so that was the beginning. It, there had to be a face-to-face interview. And th- that's the one thing. But the bot was just hilarious. It was informative. It was very engaging. And, and th- this was brand new for me and also the developers we were working with. They had developed the skill set. And then they're looking to me to write the questions and or correct or suggest other responses. Inevitably, we got this down. Facebook ended up doing a case study on us because of this. And uh, it was about utilizing Facebook Messenger to recruit potential hires in, in, in the Philippines. And uh, Why the Philippines over any other territory or scale to the U.S. or guessing regulations are a different thing, but there, but like, how did you land there? Sure. So in the end, it's a, it was volume play. This goes again to basic microeconomics. There's other services that were similar at the time in the United States, but to utilize that service in, in let's say New York city, for example, with tip is going to run you about 150 to $170. And it's just for most people, that's rather prohibitive to get a massage. You, you don't want to do it once on your birthday. I mean, it depends, of course, on, on how much you want to spend. But what happened in, in the Philippines is that the first service was offered for about $8. So what happened was people were ordering five, six, seven times a week. And so it was much less expensive, but the volume went way higher. Interesting. How does that make sense? If, because it's like your, you know, like the provider, like it's isn't the money kind of isn't the currency kind of an equalizer in the same in the same? Or did you have was it a lot of like tourists and other people who could afford that? Or because if it's if eight dollars is not a lot to spend, then it's not a, then it's then it's like your what the consumer pays versus what the provider receives, and how that money is is that a lot or a little to, to both parties? I'm just trying to think that through, but that's interesting. Wasn't, I guess, the the Metro Manila also 13 million people? Oh, it's more than that. No one really knows. I think it's upwards of 20. But in the end, the value to the customer was a quality experience and one which is affordable and one in which they would repeatedly book. To the provider, many of the providers only made a few hundred dollars before they we met them and uh, they, they might make $400 a month, maybe, maybe somewhat more than that. But the, when our top performers made over three grand a month and in, in this part of the world, it's a very substantial amount of money. And what, what had changed or in what precipitated that change in demand where it just went through the roof? Because like, I imagine it was going steady and then it was just like like raining 
reigning cats and dogs. What, what changed in the strategy or how did you create that level of demand? There were various incentives in which you could refer people and you could get a, a discount, but I really believe it was just the quality of the service. And in, in this part of the world, frequently you might get a low quality service or perhaps even something illicit. And so this was a, a consistently consistent service with quality and people just, just took to it and started booking regularly. And so it, it got to a point in which we had to turn the faucet off in terms of the marketing because it was just too substantial. So it sounds like you made something that the service, because it was an app, it was, a, it was really accessible. And then for the fit for the service, like there was just uh, both lacking, excuse me, the demand was there, but you really just connected the supply and the demands where a lot of those providers that hadn't been making a lot of money could work more and then versus tapping in. How did you, that brings me to the next question of how did you land on this particular service over something else? It was my, my business partner, David's idea. He was visiting in Madrid when I was getting my MBA and he had the idea. What about an Uber for massage service? And from there, it went to all kinds of different health services and uh, grooming as well. And we had both lived in the Philippines and we decided to do it there. And for the reasons that I told you before as well. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it's so incredible that it's such a, it's such like a specific story and a specific business, like Uber for health and wellness services in Manila, in the Philippines. So I know, because you have such a myriad of skill sets that you've learned and acquired through all your different ventures. And then you also have a lot of different degrees between MBA and, you know, being a lawyer and all these things. Do you have... Does, do things, do you have a couple that are more like your, your kingpins or, or that come more naturally efficiency I don't know if that's one of your things, or how do you look at kind of what's your greatest value add given that you can do so many different things, or is that just kind of how you frame it basically is you can figure out a lot of different scenarios. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't good at operational analysis at the outset, just like anything else. It's something that you have to develop over time. Going into in the, the experience with Xenia and in, in other executive roles that I've been involved in, in which it was very numbers focused. I'm consistently looking at, at analytics or finances or operational data. This was a very significant departure from what I was doing before. I think in where I feel most comfortable is in, in right brain activities. I like philosophy and I love history and music and literature. And law is quite a good area to be in if that's where your mind is. Things are arguable. The classic legal answer will be it depends. In the end, you can come up with, a, with arguments. You can create value in artful ways, in very creative ways. And I had to completely shift my mode of thinking to exactness. There has to be an exact answer to, to the decimal because when you're doing operational analysis, you can't say that it depends 
or yeah, maybe, or it's arguable, or from time <laughs> to time, it's ridiculous. You, you, that's a recipe for disaster. That's not so, Six Sigma. Yeah. So it's a completely different way of thinking about things. And I grew to love numbers. And I grew to really enjoy looking at a, at a data set and breaking it down and you know, finding some hidden treasure in there. And even finance, which is over time, you develop a skill and, and you, you grow to enjoy it. But it's a very different way of thinking. In law school, they teach you how to break things down. You get a fact pattern, you break it down into specific elements of, of it could be a crime, it could be something involving contracts or family law or multiple different aspects of law. But when you're in operations, it has to be absolutely clear on point. So in the end, I think in the end, I'm still most comfortable. I've had the privilege to, to expand my, my, my horizons and try to acquire other skill sets in these other areas. But with law, I feel quite comfortable. And I practice very specialized form of law. In general, I represent startups, executives, and I see the challenges that they're experiencing at the onset and then throughout the lifetime of the business. And you try and help them in creating solutions. And it's very rewarding in that respect. So for example, they want to grow their business into a new nation. That's very challenging, but I might have an idea how to help with that, depending upon the nation. You want to form a partnership. You want to enter into a contract with somebody else that I have a lot of experience in. And I really enjoy that because in the end, people have this sometimes a conception about the practice of law that it's all just destroying. It's, it's all about lawsuits and it's just, there's, a certain negative aspect to it, but yeah, I don't isn't see it all about necessarily. That, I don't really th I think so, or at least about, the type of law that I practice. It's about generating value, or it's about assisting in the creation of value. So, if your client wants to engage in a contract with somebody else, by its very nature, that contract should create value for both sides. It's contributing something good to the universe, and. Fundamentally, as well, enterprises. It's it, in general, forming a new business is something that's of huge value to on a macroeconomic scale and on, on numerous sides. And to assist in that is great. And you create, you try and help the founders or the executives create value for the company, for their investors, for their, their employees and/or contractors. And hopefully the mission of the company is something that benefits society in general. And then my special team, intellectual property. I love intellectual property, particularly copyright law, but I also do a lot of work in, in trademark. And these things are fundamentally about value creation. You're generating something that in most cases previously did not exist. It's something in which the government recognizes that you should have sole right 
to use and to reap the economic benefits of that thing for a certain period of time as a recognition of your efforts. And so you create a song, you should be able to be economically rewarded and protected, and you should be able to pursue others that might be trying to, to take what you created. And in, in terms of intellectual property, I, I really enjoyed working with artists because I was a pianist. I also write a lot of music and I want to help. And making sure that the work's protected, whether it's a book, or a screenplay, a painting, a show of some sort, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It strikes a chord of justice for you. With all the things that you've learned, which is, I'm just like so impressed by it. It's like, we haven't even talked about like half of this. Like he speaks multiple languages. Like it just goes on and on. It's, like, it's crazy. So what, what are you, what are you trying to learn now? Or like, well, how do you, do you get structured on what you learn next? Or is it more of just, you want to continue to master piano and like all the things that bring you joy and pleasure, but like in, just across the board, it could be business, personal, like hobbies, what anything really, relationships, but kind of what's your new frontier in terms? I think in the end, in, in the road to self-actualization, there's numerous things that you can fill your life with and works one. And that's an extremely important aspect of everyone's life, of course, but there's so many other things. So whether it's learning new languages or visiting exotic locations or developing friendships with people or reading books. I try and do a bit of all those things. Learning new languages is something I'm usually trying to accomplish. Reading books, as I, I said before, I try and read one book a week and it could be in, on anything. It could be on history or philosophy or geopolitics, mathematics. And then there's travel. I'm in Northern Macedonia right now. This morning I was in Albania and yesterday I was in Kosovo. And these places weren't necessarily on my list from a long time ago, but they've just been utterly fascinating. I've met super interesting people, seen castles and fascinating aspects of, of their histories, tried new foods and um, had a lot of fun. And so that's always one of it. Travel meeting interesting people, learning new skills, and developing yourself more. And I, I think with travel and getting yourself out there, you're constantly interacting with people from different cultures and learning from them and broadening your worldview. And uh, it's, to, to me, it's extremely rewarding to do that. Broadening your worldview. So what's something you've changed your mind on in the last whatever time period, year? month, year, five years, and you can pick the time period, but what's something you change your perspective on in a pretty significant way? And if you want examples, I can give you one, need them. That's interesting. Just thinking about my recent travels, I was in Poland last week, and then in, in Albania. In Poland, it was quite interesting. Uh, the, in, in some of the people that I was studying, including Chopin and Marie, I began to understand their it's not so much a preoccupation, but it's a, it's furthering their national identity. Chopin, he didn't choose all the time 
established forms of songs. He chose Polonaise and the Chazos and Mazurks, which are traditional Polish dances, but he was living in Paris for the second half of his life. And so he was trying to really emphasize his Polish identity because the borders of Poland had been switching all the time. And at this time, Poland wasn't a nation. And it, it was asserting the national identity through his, his works, which I found to be totally fascinating. And I've been playing these pieces for 25 years. In Albania, it's been very compelling to see what the effect of was of, of the, the Warsaw Pact. And World War II is a fascinating time period. I've read so many books, but it, we know that there is the Iron Curtain that, that descended. But in the end, what happened with all these nations that were in this? Poland is one of them. It's basically you were under dominion of, from one people and on two, dominion under the next, the Soviets. So it's a really fascinating thing. You can have the broad strokes about what the history is, but then when, once you're there and once you see certain things, they might color your opinion entirely. That's like the most well-read answer of what did you change your mind on recently? <laughs> what did you change your mind on? I'm way more fluent in every domain of the entire world. That's how I receive it. <laughs> it's making me want to go back to school. Man, I got to get, I got to become a lawyer and an MBA. Yeah. You, I'm just, I'm constantly fascinated by so many things around whether it's culture or it's history or it's music and, uh, and business, of course. But uh, there's so many sides to life. There's so many things to learn. Like for me, it's, uh, I'm eager to learn the next thing. It's not a race, but it's just out of, out of all the countries that I've been to. And I think that today coming into Macedonia, I think this is my 83rd country. I think that I've, I just basically, this is the tip of the iceberg. Wow. Even with countries that I've lived in, whether it be Spain or France or Turkey, there, there's so much more to explore. The national identity, the history, the culture, the food, the music, politics, the natural beauty of a place. It's just, it's endlessly fascinating. Where do you think that curiosity comes from? Is that innate for you? Or is that something that you've, uh, you've come to appreciate? I think it's, it's just kind of where I was always, even when I was a kid. For example, the piano, I wasn't forced to play the piano. I sat down and taught myself to play because I was fascinated. And I think that as I got a little older and started traveling, it's, I realized that there was just such a world out there. And also, I props to my folks that, that took me around when I was younger. My, my father, he was trying to sell this instrument to the Russians back in 1991. This is right at the fall of the Soviet Empire. And uh, I was there. I was a kid. And uh, he, he took me and, and my brothers with him. And uh, I was just like, wow, this is, even if you don't know the entirety of the history you could have a, a general idea of something momentous had just happened. And you are completely out of your comfort zone. Nothing is the same as in Huntington Beach, California. And 
as I started traveling more and more, I realized that I'm more comfortable when I'm outside of my comfort zone because every day brings new challenges, whether it's, it's a linguistic challenge or something customs, not in terms of immigration, just people in, in the way they go about their lives. And sometimes you, you make a mistake and you had no idea that it would be so offensive. But generally, people are pretty forgiving, accepting you're, you're a foreigner, you're learning. But it's that confrontation with these new things on a regular basis and all the supplementing with books. When I used to travel a lot, it's back in like the late 20s, and I go to a new place like South Africa, I go to Egypt, when I went to Japan, I would spend about two months before going, and I would read whatever I could find, books on, on the history and the politics, and I would read their, their most prominent authors as well. I would watch movies from that nation. I'd watch movies about that the history of that nation. And so all the while you're starting to get an appreciation for what, what this country might be about. And once you, you go there and you're at Angkor Wat, you're at the pyramids of Egypt and or other mental place in the world, and you have an appreciation of what happened there. To me, it's all the more rewarding. For a second, I thought you meant customs like getting into a country and you're, i was just like wow this guy is so has such a good attitude for all aspects of life. <laughs> it's like when i get to yeah. learn how to get through customs i'm like wow he literally is taking one of my least favorite moments in life and turning it into a yeah job. it's a i had that issue today i actually had to walk across the border from albania into macedonia and uh, that that happens, happens to me quite a few times but no i was referring to customs, you know, the, yeah. the way people go about their lives. So, social mores, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's obviously fascinating. There's just so much to learn. What are you working on now? So right now I'm working on my law practice and I've gone back to practicing law and fortunately I can do it while I'm traveling because as I, I mentioned before, the majority of what I do is advising on corporate intellectual property matters and writing agreements. And so I'm really enjoying that. And for a couple different respects, number one, I, I like the work. I like finding solutions or at least offering solutions to, to interesting problems. I like writing contracts. It's fun for me. But as I mentioned before, I think that it's the contract fundamentally creates value. It's not destroying value. And I like that. But the other thing is that having been an entrepreneur in a few different businesses and started my own companies and worked, I was a COO, I've been a CEO, both two or three times over. I've done fundraising as an executive as well. Because I was in those roles and had to develop these new skill sets, it's influenced the way that I advise founders and entrepreneurs now, because I believe that I have a strong sense of, of empathy because I was there. I, I did it. And, uh, and there's certain things as well that I think that I would catch better now than maybe 20 years ago. 
for example, I was reading a, an agreement recently, and it was a contract in which the one party was to just basically sell the goods as a reseller. And there was a provision stating that this reseller had to offer customer support to their customers. And another lawyer might have caught that. It was perfectly legally sound. But I ran a customer support team, and I knew what an onslaught of pain that this would bring. So I highlighted that as really more from a business perspective than from a legal perspective, because I knew what it might entail. And this company did not do support services at all. And so my, my experiences in, in, in being an, an executive, I think, have changed the way to an extent that I counsel my clients now. And uh, yeah, it's fun. I enjoy it. Because you had been, it's, it's interesting you say that. You had been an executive previously to starting and deciding to focus on, on, on your law practice. What made you decide to go back to law? That's compelling. I think that I brought a couple of companies to profitability. And so I was working in, in, in early stage startups. There was another company in which I was executive. And this was out of its early stage. It was already profitable. And I worked on increasing its profitability and expanding that business. But in the end, at least for the early stage, it's just a whale of work. And you're, you're burning the midnight oil and, and frequently, and it's very challenging. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I really appreciated that. But I'm at a time in my life right now where I'm also enjoying smelling the roses a little bit and uh, engaging in, in other uh, activities that I like, like travel. And in, in running the law practice, it gives me the flexibility to do that. Have you thought about doing, so you're running the law practice, have you thought about doing like fractional COO services or on top of that, or in addition to, or you just want to focus on? I should perhaps modify one thing that I was saying. In, in that I'm running the law practice. The interesting thing is that I'm simultaneously consulting some clients on business matters. So it might be on operations or data science, general management and leadership, and also on, on some aspects of financial analysis. So in a sense, I've expanded from offering just legal services and it's a much, it's greater list of services that I provide. So to answer your question, sure, those are things that I, I would certainly consider. But anyway, that's, that's what's happening now. And to me, the journey just gets more and more interesting as you progress and as you learn and as not just learn a new skill, but learn from your mistakes as well. It's just a great ride. It's such a refreshing perspective because something I really struggle with is I'm, I've historically been so 90, 10, 90 being like, okay, what's next? And then 10 being stopping to smell the roses, appreciating the journey, being grateful. And so, yeah, like I said, it's very refreshing to hear your perspective and in terms of you doing and learning all this shit. It's just my, that's the way that I go about my life. I'm not sure that would be valuable to somebody else. And also 
the things that I pursue, having a family that is, is of equal or greater value and spending time with your friends and your loved ones, that's critical. I think in the end, if you're an executive, it's about balance. And if you push too hard, there ultimately something's going to drop, something's going to fail. And it could be a mistake at work, or it could be you're missing out on something really beautiful in life. So in the end, and mind you as well, this doesn't, I'm not sure if you can necessarily do that consistently throughout your life. I've had times in which it's more like 99% work and 1% leisure or zero leisure. And then flip that around and I'm taking a break. I'm going to take a year and go travel. And ultimately, if you can achieve both and maintain a certain amount of, of, of living and smelling the roses and, and, and engaging and things that whatever you find to be pleasurable, I think that's the real that's the real reward because in the end if you consistently pulverize yourself at work something's going to fall one of the important things i think is to really take care of yourself get consistent exercise that's another thing that i truly enjoy is boxing and muay thai in fact i used to be a cage fighter when i was living in southeast asia this <laughs> guy's ridiculous man Oh my God. How often do you get yeah. that? How often do you get that? Of like, wow, you're so interested in Renaissance, man. I really believe that you're just, it's genuinely just what interests you and you just have that curiosity. But I've always loved the quote Renaissance, man. And uh, I know I was just curious if you get that a lot or not. From, from time to time. Well, most most <laughs> people don't understand the cage fighting thing at all. <laughs> and uh, what, what was crazy is that I, I was. When I used to compete, <laughs> I, I, I might be doing a piano concert the very same weekend. Jeez your hands Christ. are kind of a pr precious commodity. Not just your but, hands, but your brain too. You know, yeah, that's actually kind of important too. Yeah, that's, that, you take a real solid hit to the head that can affect your irrational uh, <laughs> capability. But it's, uh, it's curious how I got into that. And... Uh, I, I studied martial arts when I was a kid, particularly Korean martial arts like Kung Soo Do, Taekwondo. And then I became very interested in some other martial art forms like Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do. But when I was living in the Philippines, I was seeking out a, a new workout. It's something that was effective. In one hour, I'm going to get a tremendous cardio workout and it's going to work my whole body. And I discovered Muay Thai. And I just fell in love with it. It's just such an incredible combat form, art form. And I didn't set out to, to cage fight at the onset, but as I became more comfortable practicing and, and developed the skill, it just seems to be like the inevitable next step. And it speaks to something in my psychology, which I don't know if I truly understand, but the idea of going into the cage to me was the hardest thing that I could think about to do. And that's why I wanted to do it because we challenge ourselves all the time. You get a degree, you have a win at work, you get a new job, you have challenges in your social life. But 
after graduating from my, my various degrees and achieving a moderate level of success in my professional life, I was seeking out something extraordinary, something in which it's almost inimitable. And so it, it was very strange because I fought these young athletes and I was a 35-year-old lawyer. And to me, this was just a, a, something that you have to rise to or you're going to fall. And there's no, this isn't a matter that happens over the course of time. It happens in the course of minutes. And that's how I got into that. Last time I fought was, uh, was a few years ago. And uh, I was already 41 at the time. And then when I was living in Colombia for a while, I was into boxing. And I wanted to do a straight-up Western boxing. Maybe it's not such a good idea. It's one of those pauses, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, man, it's such a, and what is crazy to think about it is I feel like we've just scratched the surface on your life in like business and what really stood out is just how passionate you you are about the law and it's uh, it's really interesting to to hear a person it's always interesting to hear somebody speak about something so viscerally that you really feel like it it comes alive because you something that you love of like flight writing contracts is like it makes me want to watch paint dry yeah, that's, I wouldn't even say law. I would just, law is probably the chief example, but just his, your ability to take really, just find, if you want to be interested, and that's, I feel like your tagline in life, and you're just interested in so many things, even things that I'd rather, rather watch plants grow, read contracts and, and deal with that, you you genuinely find an appreciation and interest in it. I think some of it, listening to you talk is, not just the process itself, which you may, it sounds like you enjoy, but also your ability to connect it to something that matters to you. Like you kept saying, it's creating value, not destroying it. So I would hazard a guess that's a component of it. And, I'll, and you can speak to that, but I'm always curious, like, how, does that resonate? Because I look at that as like, why would this culture be interesting? Or why would this art form be interesting? And some of it is if you're not able to connect it to a bigger picture, like the context and significance of World War II, like that for that reason, I'm going to read these books. Sometimes I struggle to connect these different things into the bigger picture. And therefore, I struggle to be as interested as you are. So I don't know if any of that is a jumping off point for you to speak to, but that's what I'm, I'm, For example, with the contract, it wasn't always that way. When I was in law school, we had to take a year of contracts and I was just mortified. It was, I just didn't like it at that time, but it didn't have a life to it. A contract, it breathes and it starts out frequently as a template. And then you work your way in. You, you have to fashion it and mold it and to fit the situation ideally, or at least as ideal as it can be for your client. And so I like to say a contract is like a well-tailored suit. You start out with a bunch of cloth and then you use your experience and your knowledge and a bit of artistry to, to create something that, like I said before, generates value and at least value for your client. I'm just reflecting how I feel like I've moved up in the world because the way you describe contracts like you slice it, you dice it, it's like the way I've heard like old roommates describe their favorite meal. It's like, it's just, there's so much, there's so much in it for you there. 
And that's just a beautiful, it's always, like Scott was saying, it's always just a beautiful thing to hear people describe at such a visceral level, their engagement and excitement. Yeah, they're fascinating. (laughs) And and, and mind you, the themes that you were seeing as well, they all interact. For example, I was negotiating contracts in, in LA, which I did for a long time. That's one thing. And there's going to be all kinds of issues. But fly to China and negotiate a contract with somebody that, that may speak Chinese or English very well or, or might not. That's an entirely different situation. And this goes back to what I was saying about knowledge of languages, knowledge of customs. They all interact with each other. you got to figure it out. And so what I found is that the, what I've learned from traveling and reading, it very well might apply in a context of work, in a context of, yeah, conducting your professional life. When I was a the general counsel at Behringer, I had either lawyers, legal or paralegals in four countries and then outsourced to law firms in, in all over the world. And so frequently it was my, my knowledge of the country. It might have to do with their laws or it might just, I know how to say, how are you in Mandarin? And it just set, sets the stage for a, a relationship, whether it's a social relationship or a professional one. So what I found is that you start to draw things from your experiences in life and they might contribute somewhere that you didn't think might where it might. I've worked in, in, in the Philippines and in, in Colombia and in China and having a knowledge of the customs there, of some of the history, of the mannerisms, some of the language was critically important. In, in the end, I don't set out necessarily to, to learn something because I think it will have utility for me, at least something that's not work-related. But what I've learned is that you, when you set out to educate yourself about very well, might help you in a in whatever work that you're doing. Not always, but it could be. So, in the end, if you're doing business around the world, you're expanding companies to other countries. This these kinds of experiences can be relevant. On that note, maybe we're coming up on coming up on an hour and a half here. Brian, absolute pleasure. On, on that Thank note, you. which is any note that we're at this point. I appreciate you so much for coming on. You're just such a fascinating... I might title this podcast the episode, this episode podcast, the most interesting man I've ever met, or just period. It's not even I've met because then we yeah, all have Scott period. and I don't want to... And it's just like period. So anyway, I really... and I. Re- yeah, I'm just so fascinated to talk to you all the time. So I really appreciate you coming on. That's you. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Awesome. That being said, Brian, where can folks find you or reach out to you for legal advice or business uh, business consulting? Uh, you can go to my website. It's uh, www.perleylaw.com. It's spelled P-E-R-L-E-Y-L-A-W.com. And, uh, yeah, just give me a ring, shoot me an email, and I'm always happy to help. Awesome. On that note, thank you again. All right. You guys take care. Thank you. See ya. Bye.
Now, with this episode at a close, let's fucking vamos on out of here.